Hey everyone, my name is Dr. Dolores Tarver. I'm a licensed psychologist and it is time for the TT Time with Dr. Tarver is a wellness-based podcast. It is not intended to be a substitute with a relationship with a mental health provider. So we are live tonight. We are going to be having one of the conversations that I'm most excited about and have been looking forward to. And that was requested by all of you, which we will be discussing the state of the Black woman. I have two phenomenal guests on here with me this evening, Dr. Tia Glass-Starker and Dr. Delisha Pittman. And we are going to get into, when I tell you the tea is going to be piping hot today, the tea is going to be popping, piping hot today. So join, come on in, you all come on in. You can put your questions in the chat to be able to directly communicate as we have this live. But I don't want to waste any more time. I want to make sure that we go ahead and get started. So it is my sincere pleasure to introduce two phenomenal women to you on this evening. Dr. Tia Starker-Glass is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Cato College and an Associate Professor of Elementary Education and Educational Psychology in the Department of Reading and Elementary Education at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is a Student Experience Research Network Fellow. Therefore, she uses her research and expertise to inform education policy. Dr. Glass is a TED speaker and has an upcoming book entitled Teaching for Justice and Belonging, A Journey for Educators and Parents, right, which will be released August 2022. Dr. Glass is an educational advisor and certified trainer with Brownicity, Many Hues, One Humanity. She co-founded and is the director of the Anti-Racism Graduate Certificate Program at UNC Charlotte. Welcome, Dr. Glass. Thank you. Happy to be here. We also have Dr. Delisha Pittman. Dr. Delisha Pittman was the first African-American to be board certified in counseling psychology in the District of Columbia. She is the founder and clinical director of the Paradigm Shift Psych Psychological Wellness and a tenured associate professor of counseling in the Graduate School of Education in Human Development at the George Washington University, where she also serves as the director of the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program. Dr. Pittman, Pittman researches health disparities, exploring the contributions of race, culture, environment, and diverse lived experiences on health behavior and health outcomes in Black emerging adults. She is sought out for her expertise in the areas of racial equality and social justice education with specific attention to anti-Black racism, racial bias, and whiteness awareness building. Dr. Pittman is passionate about training culturally responsive mental health providers and researchers equipped to serve the needs of a rapidly diversifying nation. Welcome, Dr. Pittman. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Me too. So let's get going. Now, I cannot start this conversation, I refuse to start this conversation without first talking about how amazing Black women are as we here stand in the making of our first Black woman appointee to the Supreme Court, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. So can we just for a moment bask in the glory of the greatness <laughs> of who this woman is. So just let it sit on you that we will soon have our first black woman judge. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to move on. We also during 2020 elected nine phenomenal women uh, as mayors in in huge cities, large cities around the area. Some of the names you might be familiar with, Keisha Lance Bottoms out of Atlanta, Muriel Muriel Bowser out of DC, um, and then Lori Lightfoot out of Chicago. And these women set a standard, set a precedent about how they were handling things during this pandemic. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Pittman. How do you see African-American women driving this country in so many important ways? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as you highlighted, particularly 
the influx of black women who are, are seeking um, elected local, state, um, national um, government uh, elected positions, I think is, is certainly an indication of that. Um, but I think even sort of before we arrive at that place, there are very few things, at least in my opinion, um, that move in this world without the power of black women. Um, you know, when you, particularly given the, the relative size of the population of black women, black women make up only 14% of all women um, in the country, 52% um, of African-Americans. So, you know, in comparison to, to our size, very few things can move in the way that that once black women get behind them can move. Um, black women influence everything from culture to media, to beauty standards, to TV and film and civic engagement and politics and everything in between. So, um, you know, I think when you think about the impact of a population that is as small as the population of, of black women, um, it's, it's a force to be reckoned with. So I, I would say we, we, drive, we drive everything that happens in this country, whether it is with our, our spending, uh, putting our dollars behind something, um, lending our credibility to someone or something. Um, black women drive this country in many, many ways. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I will uh, during our our, our pre-call as we were we were in preparation for this live, we were talking about that everyone wants to utilize the ways that we can show up and mobilize people. That everyone wants to use our social capital if you will. So when it comes down to, I want a black woman on my team because I know that we're looking at Stacey Abrams in Atlanta and how she got, and it was not just her, she, it was, she was a part of a team, but she definitely was at the forefront of getting 300,000 people <laughs> mobilized um, and, and, and registered uh, and making sure that we hadn't fallen off the roll. Uh, Dr. Glass, I also, you mentioned um, and people may not be aware of your research out, but you also mentioned during our, our pre-call about how Black women sh showed up during the pandemic. And I know you have done, in particular, some research on that. Talk to us about what are some of the ways we were innovative, we were resourceful, uh, we were strategic, we were collaborative in order for us to be able to manage a pandemic that was thrust upon this country of which we had no idea how it was going to turn out. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, <laughs> what I remember telling uh, some of my girlfriends is like, oh, this is our time. Like, this is this is what we already do. So, you know, and it's unfortunate that it's a, you know, a pandemic and people are are dying, but all right. So it's, it's time, you know, school shut down, um, but work kept going, you know, being a professor, that meant all our classes moved online. And so, it was me and several of my colleagues who were like, all right, so what are y'all doing at y'all house? What do you, you know, what do you have going on? All right, let's get the kids together for play dates. Let's figure out, you know, where are the places that have access for lunches? And, you know, we really just kind of pulled all of our resources together to make sure that we were okay, our families were okay, our kids were okay, and our, our communities we're okay. And I think we have always been resourceful because we've had to be, right? Historically, we have had to be resourceful and resilient and innovative and creative. We can have nothing and turn it into something absolutely wonderful. And I think the pandemic showed this. Um, and so for me and my colleagues, it was difficult for us. Um, and as we had conversations and really took on this um, this role of mother schooling, right? This way in which we um, took care of our kids and we were sending resources back and forth. And all right, whose skill set is in English? Whose skill set is in education? We have, you know, a theater friend. We got a public policy and a sociology. So we were just curating resources. And all right, well, let me jump on Zoom and and teach all the kids about X, Y, and Z. All right, who's next? And you know, just thinking about ways that we could. Um, make sure that all of our kids were taken care of. But I think also within 2020, watching all of the 
state sanctioned murder of black folks, right? Black men, black women and black trans folks. Um, I think the way in which we came together as a community um, of, of black moms was a way for us to resist all of that that was going on and make sure that our, our kids and our families and our communities still got to experience joy, right? So making sure that joy was still centered was our act of resistance uh, because things were heavy. You know, folks calling left and right, all right, you know, I've finally woken up, you know, racism exists in, in, in the U.S., please help me fix it, like fix it and fix it like right now. And I'm like, I don't even have an opportunity to grieve. Wait a minute. Like you are not my first priority, uh, you know, and workplaces doing the same thing. And so it really was a way again for us to kind of just pull ourselves together um, and make sure that we were centered in joy, watching all the you know, the Netflix shows and, uh, and reading all the things to make sure that joy still existed within ourselves and within our households um, as a form of resistance to everything else that was going on. And so from our work, we realized that it was hard for us as kind of middle-class Black women, but what's going on with low-income or home-insecure Black women? And so we pulled ourselves together again. And now we're collecting data, interviewing um, home insecure Black moms to see what is going on. How are you raising your kids? How are you managing a job? How are you managing, you know, staying well in a pandemic? And so just making sure that we are amplifying the voices, giving the microphone to moms that are oftentimes invisible, um, because we know if we don't do it, no one else really is. So we want to make sure we take the microphones into communities that often um, are not heard. So we'll we'll do a summit in May where we're really just going to bring folks together to kind of, again, amplify the voices of these Black moms who are resilient and surviving, but trying to get to this point of thriving all the while being, you know, home insecure, um, underemployed and trying to raise kids, um, school age kids at the same time, but we're doing it. We're doing absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you brought up a lot of, um, points and I, and I saw Dr. Pittman shaking her head. So she might have some additional comments as well about, so we had to do all of these things and take care of ourselves and take care of our, our, our kids and take care of our communities, um, and, and run these cities and make sure that that things were happening. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure people remember how many times we saw a Black woman uh, on TV uh, either pleading in some way for like, hey, uh, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, gave the, the auntie speech. You all are in here in Atlanta. You're doing things that are, are hurting you. And I need for you to hear my voice. I understand you're in pain. I see your pain. I feel your pain because these are my children that I'm seeing being gunned down in these streets. Mm -hmm. um, however, I need for you all to be safe. I need for you to hear under the sound of my voice that we're going to do some things to address this. Um, but I need for you all to make sure that you're taking care of you. I need for you black men to make sure you're taking care of you. I need for you black women and the children. So there, there were all of these calls. And then we saw women grieving. Um, and, and I, the seeing moms and that probably stood out to you as well to see these mothers mourning the loss of their children. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine the pain that it must be for someone to watch a video of someone they love being gunned down, um, and the helplessness and the hopelessness that that feels, uh, in that moment. And so as we, we have these conversations about Black women, let's get into that, Dr. Pittman. I know this is right up your research alley as well. Let's talk about the pain, um, that we saw a lot of Black women experiencing and how we were managing that pain during these times. You know, I think that's a really fantastic question. I think certainly <clears throat> to Dr. Glass's point, I think, you know, for generations, Black women have been, you know, fabricating joy from, from nothing. And so, you know, I think, and joy, I think in many ways is the antidote to a lot of that pain. Um, community, right? Community, and I certainly think resistance and protests um, became part of sort of a collective healing of being able to lean on 
one another um, in a way that really, I think was probably the only way we had during specifically in, in early in the pandemic to grieve, right? So, you know, people were losing loved ones left and right to COVID. You couldn't have funerals, you couldn't visit them in the hospital. Um, and so grief became a really isolated process for so many of us and so many folks in our community in a way that it is typically not, right? So, you know, I think even though very public and very painful, um, it really probably was the only thing that we had was public grief um, in that way. And I think it also was, was so critical in humanizing Black women um, in the public gaze in a way that, you know, we often aren't um, seen as human and, are, and, and either, you know, unemotive um, and lacking in emotion and or overly emotional um, and hysterical. And so, you know, I think, though I wish it could have happened differently and under, under different circumstances, um, I think it re we really needed to sort of catalyze that pain um, in a way that in the pandemic, white folks just couldn't ignore anymore. Um, you know, we had, the pandemic really removed all of the distractions that we fill our time and our days with. And so it really forced white folks to really reckon with, um, with white supremacy and police brutality and, and racism um, in a way that otherwise might not have happened. Um, but I also recognize that, hey, we got a visitor, I love it. Um, you know, that, that there were so many of those um, you know, it seemed like for a while it was, it was unending. Um, and so there was sort of a barrage of, of grief and pain and anger um, and no outlet for it, seemingly no justice um, for it. Um, and so, you know, even in my practice, it's, it's almost as if it's catching up. So I feel like I have, um, and, and my practice is 90, let's say 98% Black, um, and of the 98% of them, 80% of them are women, Black women. And so, you know, there, there's now this wave of really sort of like delayed grief and delayed burnout, but it's also really protracted, right? That we have been surviving and holding up and building up and shouldering so much in the pandemic um, that it's catching up as, as the world starts to try to sort of reopen and and find whatever this new normal will be um, yeah. there is still very much um, a weight I think attached to a lot of that pain that that I think is showing up for a lot of my clients is burnout um, I think a lot of it is actually really just racial battle fatigue um, in many many ways um, and there there isn't language or conversation around that right we're just like exhausted beyond exhausted we're like I slept and I woke up and I don't feel any more rested uh you know than I did before I went to bed and so you know really trying to disentangle like physical exhaustion or fatigue from emotional fatigue and psychological fatigue and and though a nap is helpful um and can can address a lot of things emotionally it doesn't really start to touch in any meaningful way emotional and psychological fatigue. Um, and I think we are going to have to reckon with that um, in our communities and figure out how do we protect us as we heal, um, as we move through burnout, still having to shoulder and carry a lot of the same things. We don't, we didn't get to put them down. Um, but, but I think I'm seeing, I'm seeing the, the long-term effects of that and, and it's concerning, absolutely. Um, but I trust that, you know, as we always do, we will rise. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, Dr. Glass was was uh, managing one of her young ones as he came in to just get a little mama loving. But I'm sure that you probably want to kind of weigh in a little bit too on, um, as Dr. Pittman talked about, how we are still dealing with the after effects, because a lot of times we don't get a chance to live in the space of, uh, and Dr. Pittman, I think, stated this really well, we don't get to live in the space of our emotions because it's always considered to something. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's too emotional. It's too cold. It's so we don't get a chance to really talk about this fatigue. And and it seemed like back to back to back to back. Yeah. Uh, you we couldn't catch a break uh, from seeing someone being murdered. And and it did. It took a collective toll on us. Meanwhile, we're still managing all of these other things that we're dealing with. So talk about what you saw and experienced and and some of the ways that you're recognized this is still showing up within us even today. Yeah, yeah. We're we're tired. Um and I'm including myself in that in that we we are tired. Um we're actually my colleagues and I are um it's a group of five black women. Uh, we consider ourselves those mother scholars. We're actually presenting at the uh, Faculty Women of Color conference and our title is you're not burnt out they're setting you on fire, right? The ways in which our our jobs um, are just consistently like, oh, it's not that bad, just keep going. Or, you know, there's great res- resignation and all of these people are leaving, but let me just stack a couple extra things on you. Yes, gas is high, food is high, you know, all these things, but, you know, we still just got to keep going. And we're like, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out ways and learn ways to say no and to push back. And to help them, you know, kind of identify these oppressive ways that, especially for Black women, you just want us to to keep going. And there's only so much that we can kind of compartmentalize because at some point, those things are going to begin to to blur together. Um, And so I think for a lot of us, it's kind of twofold. We're learning ways to say no right? We're at max capacity. I don't have any more bandwidth to take on any new initiatives, you know, no new projects. But then it's also this turning in towards who are your folks, right? Where are your girls? You know, when you are at that place where you're tired or um, let me just tell you what in the world just happened today at work, you know, those moments um, turning back into your group um, as that sounding board, because that racial battle fatigue is so very real. Um, It is kind of, you know, we're trying to block all of the rest of the world out and really just kind of, you know, thinking about ways that we can just create our own little bubble um, for some security, for some sanity, for, you know, just some safety even um, for a little while so that we can begin to kind of rebuild. Because I think this pandemic really did chip away at all the different coping mechanisms that we had before, I think we have exhausted them. And so, you know, just trying to create this little enclave where we can restore ourselves, restore one another, um, so that we can kind of get ourselves back up and and jump back into the world uh, when we're ready. And so it is this, it is this collective exhaustion, um, but I'm seeing more and more Black women aware that this isn't just the regular old tired, right? We're exhausted and spending more time um, taking naps or you know, even following the nap ministry, like doing all of these different things in ways that we can restore ourselves. Because if we are not well, our families won't be well, our communities won't be well. And I think there is um, a, a clearer acknowledgement um, or a more frequent acknowledgement that, um, we're tired and we, we need to do something about it so that we can um, get well, be well, and stay well. Absolutely. And um, because I, I, I think it's important for us to stay in the space of, um, as, as the pastors say, that will preach moments. Uh, when you said uh, <laughs> you have been set on fire, you're not burned out, you have been set on fire, that I cannot help but segue into, as we're watching confirmation hearings Mm -hmm. of probably the most qualified woman (laughs) uh, in the space. Uh, No, uh, let me me take that back. The most qualified person in the space. We have seen this woman be asked every question that was not related at all to what she would be doing. Um, and there was pride and there was joy in attempting to tear her down. Um, and, and, and you hear um, how, how, how um, 
Judge Brown is being talked about and it and and uh, oh well she was able to handle her composure oh she got a little rattled uh, and and I'm thinking to myself most of us couldn't last a second with someone questioning us in the way that she was questioned but ladies um, and I'm going to start with you Dr. Dr. Pittman um, talk to me about why is it that when a black woman shows up in a space it becomes more about what she looks like and, and how she is expressing herself, if she uses her hands when she is talking, uh, if, if her voice elevates, um, what, what she wore uh, to the, to the um, confirmation hearings, why does it become about uh, Michelle Obama's arms? Why does it come, become about all of these aspects other than who we are as a qualified individual? Let's, let's have a conversation about, about that. You know, I think the, the, the basis, I think it's, it's fear and threat. Um, you know, if, if you can't attack her credentials, then you go wherever you can find an opening. Um, and, and the reality is, is to, get to, to get to these positions, Black women have to be not even twice as good. Um, you have to be impeccable um, and, and near flawless. Um, and so, there often isn't much else to attack. Um, and, and, you know, this is, I think, another example um, of Black excellence that threatens white folks, white supremacy. Um, how dare you think you belong? Um, how dare you play this game well? Um, and, and land here. We don't think you belong. Um, and so if we can push enough of your buttons to play into stereotypes, to activate the stereotypes in the public gaze, then we win. And they have been unsuccessful, but you know, as, as you know, in, in my own social circles and um, I'm sure as, as, as in everyone's at this point, every black woman I know is talking about these confirmation hearings. Um, you know, and all of us, like the way our petty is set up, we would have been escorted out quickly um, <laughs> and or left. We would have been like, you know what? I don't even want to be here. You can have this whole job, um, you know, and so the and, and I think that level of, of fortitude um, we have all seen, we have all exhibited, particularly if you if you exist in predominantly white space in. Um, in any capacity, not even just professionally, but if you have to exist in predominantly white spaces for a prolonged period of time of your life, you have learned um, to sort of face down this demon with that level of fortitude. Um, and, and those of us on this, on this, in this conversation have, have reached a point in our careers where we have a little more job security and we can leverage that privilege to say no, to walk out, to, to check somebody if they if they pull the wrong card on the right day. Um, and every black woman doesn't have that level of, of job security, that level of protection. And so I wanna also recognize that there are lots of black women who get that kind of treatment on their jobs, in their schools, all day, every day with no recourse, who do exactly what Judge Brown has had to do every day. Um, with no no recourse for challenging the folks in their in their spaces that that show up that way. So, um, I mean, it's it's been the whole gamut of emotions to watch: pride and joy, um, and all the black girl magic, um, and like righteous righteous anger. Um, <laughs> had to turn it off. I'm like, I can't listen to not one more of you ask a ridiculous question. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, breaking my own electronics and what have you. So <laughs> not, not the property destruction. You know, throwing things, just throwing things. So um and 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 I will say to you, we got a we got a comment in the in the chat like yes, all of that, because you can't attack my credentials, um, then you're going to try try to attack my character. Uh and and so for the judge 
Brown Jacksons for that educator in the school system, uh, that person sitting on the school board, that black woman, that teacher in the classroom uh, who, who's being attacked for being able to discuss what actually happened in our history um, and not pretending um, that we didn't experience uh, some of the hateful things that we've experienced in our history for, for that uh, custodial worker uh, who someone thinks is beneath them. Um, and, and addresses in a derogatory manner, um, but you still want me to clean up your mess. Um, talk to us, uh, Dr. Glass, about what are some of the messages that we then internalize when we are, as Dr. Pittman said, continuously in certain environments, hearing all this negative rhetoric about us, all of these criticisms, um, jobs being leveraged, over us uh, or recognizing that I am um, standing on the shoulders of many and, and I'm the one who is going to be able to break through this ceiling. And so I'm going to choose to endure some things because I know I'm going to bring some people with me. So I'm going to, I'm going to wear this, I'm going to endure this, I'm going to um, allow myself to be in this space because I know what it will do for other, other people. Talk to me about what we internalize, what we deal with when we do have to deal with these things. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult, right? It's difficult. Um, I ultimately think it begins with how we are socialized in our own homes, right? When it is time to get our hair done on Saturday night to get ready for Sunday, and our, you know, our moms, our grandmamas, our aunties are telling the stories of our ancestors or, you know, talking to us about how we are brilliant and how you will do well and how you are God's child. You know, so all of those informal yet very formal ways that we were definitely kind of being poured into. Um, and I think that makes a difference. And if you weren't poured into as a child, then you need to find those ways to you know, get poured into or pour into yourself, because I think that then makes a difference when you become an adult and what are those internal messages that you're listening to, right? Do you begin to believe people who you know don't care for you, don't like you, don't want you in this space, or do you have enough kind of in your own schema and, um, you know, self-identity and worth and value to be like, yeah, they're saying what they're saying, but I know that is absolutely not who I am, right? Um, so I think that makes a difference in how we were socialized to believe what we know about ourselves. Uh, those of us who are mothers, what work are we doing to then help our children understand who they are before the world tries to tell them who they're not? Um, but then I think it is this other part that we also help, um, you know, Elders have helped us and then we're helping our children to know that, you know, you are standing on the on the shoulders of someone who did have to be a domestic, right, and, or share crop so that you could get to that place that you are now. And then you, you know, it is your responsibility, your community, you know, obligation to make sure that you open the door up for that next person to come on through. And so I, I, I am watching uh, Judge Brown Jackson, and I can almost kind of see those stories and narratives in her eyes, like, these folks try me, but I cannot get nuck if you buck, because I know I could be the first, and I want to bust this door wide open, um, and so it is, it is the way that we always have to navigate the microaggressive and or blatantly racist ways um, that folks will try to reduce you because they ultimately know they can't touch you, right? And do we know enough of how we can't be touched? Because then they see that as a threat, but we know who we are in a way that, you know, we're going we're gonna to move our work forward. We shall not be moved. Um, and so I think it was perfect timing. And I know we'll probably talk about this in a minute, but I think it was perfect timing um, the, the day and the moment for Corey, Senator Cory Booker to just buck the whole system like, nah, sis, it's me and you right now. Let me tell you, right? And just let me love on you and let me, you know, forget all these fools that's around this room who know they can't touch you, so they just gonna try to do whatever they can. But that moment, I think we all 
watched and we felt, I had goosebumps watching it because those moments happen, right? It could be us walking down the hall and we see the, you know, the domestic or the housekeeper or the janitor getting mistreated and we give them the look, right? As we're walking by or we stop and check the person who's being abusive, right? So it, it is those moments where somebody is, is talking crazy and we, you know, we give them the, the body language across the room like, now, nah, girl, like, don't, never mind those fools or I got you if something pop off, like, I, you know, I got you. So, you know, it, it is the ways in which we affirm ourselves and we affirm, we affirm one another because we know we are trying to, to progress. We're trying to move um, things forward and expect and both demand the space and um, those positions that should be ours, you know, from the beginning, but we have to do all of this extra work to get there, but we always get there. We always get there and, you know, folks will try to find a way to, to deny, but, you know, we can, we can check the, uh, check the scoreboard, check the stats. Historically, we've always found our way to where we are supposed to be. And that would Absolutely. be on Absolutely. I mean, and, and um, yeah, so let's go ahead and share in this joy moment of when you need someone, <laughs> when you are tired and worn down and you're carrying all the weight and someone says to you, I see you, sis, I see you. Senator Cory Booker gave us a I see you, sis moment. Yeah. Um, and, and I have also been so just delighted to see the signs from little black girls saying black girls are superior. Right. Um, and and your college roommate um, introducing you. <laughs> I um, love that moment. Right, Loved it. right. And 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 so and you can look back and you can see your family because sometimes as we're dealing with the burdens and the heaviness of, of carrying all this weight that we carry because we have to be so aware of so many things at any given point. We were having a conversation um, in our pre-call about attire. So I, uh, you know, black women, we like to have control of our environments, right? Um, so, I, you know, in our pre, my pre-call, I always tell people, hey, monitor uh, what's going on in your space, professional attire. And we had a really good conversation about all of the things that include my space. Uh, and Dr. Pittman said, when I'm inviting you into my space, I'm in my home, I'm, I'm giving you permission to have access to me, uh, you're going to get who I am. And I said, you know what, sis, you are absolutely right. So you show up in the space in the way that makes you feel comfortable. And when these two ladies put on their shirts today, I said, now that's what I call professional attire. But us being able to really write the story ourselves. And Senator Booker said to um, Judge Brown Jackson, he said, you can write the story yourself, sis. These folks are trying to tell you what your narrative is, but it's your story to tell. And I want you to know that I'm here with you. So Dr. Pittman, talk to us about how we show up in the space as Black women, writing our own narrative and everything that that means from welcoming uh, a son into the room when he comes to give his mama some loving, to dogs in the background, to t-shirts that show our greatness. How do we show up and be all of who we are and normalize who we are in black, as Black women in our spaces? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think Black women have been, have been pushing narratives and agendas around what is considered professional and, you know, in vogue and desirable forever, um, you know, and, and I think now more than ever, there's, there's room for, for us to do that um, in professional spaces, and challenge identity politics, to challenge the status quo, um, particularly when it doesn't fit for us. Um, and there are so many times that it does not fit for us. And so, you know, I think, you know, as we were, as we were talking in, in our pre-conference um, or our pre-session meeting, I have, I have so valued the women before me who have modeled what it looks like to do what we do um, on our own terms and, and to, to have 
and to do that unapologetically in, in many, many ways. Um, and, I, and I'm so grateful for social media um, because it has, it has really put Black women in each other's pockets, right? So you've got an amen chorus, like in your phone, you know, Black Twitter will light it up. We, we wait for somebody to try one of us and we show up, we show up and we show out um, on the gram, wherever it is, you can go and be, be filled and fortified in a community of folks who look like you, who value the things that you value, who are gonna have the same reaction to, to some caucasity um, or what I call alabaster nonsense. I'm like, do y'all see what is happening? And, and my girlfriends are gonna line up to be like, what? And that validation sometimes is what we, is, is enough, right? For us to put on our armor, dust it off and get back in the game, um, you know? And so I, I really have, have valued having access to so many more black women that I would have without social media. Um, you know, when I came to George Washington, I, I was really committed to doing the tenure track on my own terms. I wanted to study what I wanted to study and the way that I wanted to study, who I wanted to study, teach what I wanted to teach, and only what I wanted to teach, and the ways that I wanted to teach it. Um, so that at the, at the point of, of submitting my tenure and promotion dossier, that I felt that I had done this process and could look myself in the mirror and feel good about myself um, and the culmination of the body of work that I had to show for it, regardless of the outcome. Um, now, that's not to say there were several conversations about burning down the building if the outcome was not favorable. We were, we were, yeah. we were prepared. We were prepared, you know, but fortunately we didn't have to do that. Um, you know, but, but being able to, to really own my own process, um, and, I, and it did not happen overnight. I certainly, you know, when I feel like, it's like when I came into the academy with you know tenure hanging over my head, it feels otherworldly and almost unattainable in the way that it's talked about. Um, and what many folks who aren't academics don't know is if you go up for tenure and don't successfully um, obtain tenure, you lose your job. So it's not just like, oh, you just apply again. Well, that's not exactly <laughs> how that works. Um, you know, so there are certainly, you know, there are heavy, heavy consequences. Um, but we also know that black women brilliant Black scholars have been denied tenure unfairly and unjustly at many institutions for decades. Um, and, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I mean, this, I'm like, really? This is the argument y'all, y'all want to have this conversation about this person? You, you might want to let that one go. Um, but again, it happens, it happens to the Nicole Hannah-Jones of the world and it happens to, you know, other black women who, who don't have, who aren't as high profile. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think, and, and the academy is, is a very rigid, a very rigid place. It's a very difficult culture to change. Um, it is hierarchical um, and, sometimes really oppressive for folks of color um, in many, many ways. So, you know, I think paying attention to how we show up in the world, I think allows us to really retain something that feels um, authentic, that feels like we are moving in the world with integrity, regardless of what we have to navigate um, and who we have to interface with. Um, and that, that piece I think is invaluable, right? To be able to live with yourself at the end of the day Nice. Um, it's invaluable. So. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, the showing up in spaces, being who I am, unapologetically who I am, researching who I want to research, teaching how I want to teach, what I want to teach. And, and to me, that is so important because I think so many times we feel like we have to be silenced in order to be present. Like I'm going to show up and I'm going to be here, but I can't really actually say what I want to say. 
And, and I think a lot of people felt that um, even uh, as Michelle Obama and Barack Obama were in, in office, like you, you're there, but you have to be still so very careful. Um, and I think a lot of people in academic settings in particular sometimes feel like I'm here, but I have to be careful because of this tenure track. Or I'm here because I have to be careful because I'm the one in the family that has the insurance and I'm carrying the family. Or I'm here and I know how my colleagues are. And I know that people, this world is small. This field is small and it gets smaller and smaller. And so if people start tearing down my name, because again, they can't tear down my work. So if they start tearing down my name, how is that going to affect me being able to get books? How is that going to affect me being able to show up at conferences? How is this going to affect me getting grants? How is this going to affect me getting fellows? So there's so many different things we're balancing. And then we add, what if you have a family on top of that? What if you have a partner on top of that? Um, what if you have health conditions on top of that that you're navigating? Dr. Glass, can you talk? There's a lot of, I think, misperceptions about Black women and when we have families or Black women when we have um partners or black women when we have health issues like you're going to be a problem there's going to be issues so talk about who who we really are balancing all of these things and still showing up and being absolutely brilliant and still showing up and and being two and three times better than our colleagues so talk to us about integrating that aspect of us when we show up into the space when we are coming with dogs and children and partners and health concerns yeah, I think it, it begins with being honest with ourselves, like really making sure that we know who we are, right? Because we want to be our full selves in, in any and every space. Um, I think about my own experience of, you know, graduating with my PhD, getting my first position. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm dating, but I need to get tenure. That is my number one goal. So, you know, I don't want any kids. I don't want to begin my family. I want to wait to get married until I get tenure. And I did that. Um, and looking back, I'm like, yeah, I really could have done those things while I was also, you know, on that, on that tenure track. Um, but then I, you know, I knew that it was going to take a lot more of the juggling and the balancing of, of all those different things as I was you know, um, going up for tenure. So I waited, uh, we, I got married the year before I went up and I had my first son. Um, he is my, my tenure baby. And, um, it was nice though. I, I don't know if I intentionally worked it out, but to be able to then go on FMLA leave, right. My, my maternity leave just after tenure was that opportunity for me to kind of shed the trauma of tenure. I was the first black woman in the College of Education, the 43-year history of the College of Education, I was the first Black woman to earn tenure. So there were no models for me to follow. It was me just looking at all of these other dossiers of, of people, um, which I think just put more pressure on me. And, you know, knowing, again, I didn't want to um, add anything else to the mix just to give myself a little bit more um, security, but then I think just, let me just stay focused on this thing, right? This is the goal that I've had since I graduated. Let me stay focused. Um, but then, you know, again, after having uh, both of my boys, you know, getting married, having both of my boys, um, things definitely switched. My priorities definitely switched. So there were times where, you know, no, I'm not going to take on the next the other project. No, I'm not going to, you know, be on this committee because I need to be able to, you know, pick my kids up from, from daycare, or I need to be able to have some quality time with my partner, right? So it is, you know, allowing ourselves, back to Dr. Pittman's point, like just making sure that we are good with who we are, and we know that, so that at the end of the day, when I go to sleep, right, when I'm getting ready, I know that I did what I was supposed to do, like all the balls in the air, the ones that are fragile, right? Like my health, my family, my, my children, those stayed in the air. Some of the other stuff, it, it can just fall and I'll, I'll pick it up when I can, when I can pick it up. But it, you know, there is time now where those lines blur and during the pandemic, they definitely blurred, right? So everybody wants to have meetings on Zoom and teaching on Zoom. Well, my kids are home 
because the schools have closed. So now you're about to, you're about to see the full, you know, the full max of, yes, I'm trying to pour cereal and still teach about cognition at the same time, or I'm, I'm going to be talking to administrators and, you know, go changing the channel on PBS. Like those things are just going to happen because you're in my space and I'm going to, to balance those things, but then also still making sure that the priority still existed, that my family comes first, period. Because if I died today, they'd have my job up on the, you know, online tomorrow and have my position filled in the next couple of weeks. It would just be a move on. And so I'm, I'm not willing to allow my job or my career or my profession to get in front of things that are far more precious to me, which are my, you know, my family, my children, my partner. Um, no, there you, it, it, I, I tell some of my friends, please don't make me choose because if you make me choose, you already know which one is going to lose. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get on that other project. I'm, I'm, my plate is full. I don't have any more bandwidth for anything else because this chunk goes to my family. This chunk goes to making sure that I'm, you know, going to read in my boys' classroom, uh, you know, whatever it is, like those things are a priority to me. Now, that also means late nights and early mornings. These days, it's more early mornings. I may get up at 3.30 a.m. just so that I can have a couple of hours to read and, you know, work on my research before I have to get the boys up and, and get them to school. Um, and so it is, you know, just trying to juggle and balance. But if at any point in time, something has to fall, it's going to be this job, right? It's going to be these projects are going to be those things that are not directly connected to uh, my family because they are what is most important to me. I'm hearing you both talk about prioritizing, that you both prioritized what you needed, what was important and of value to you to get out of your experience. And that is what also allowed you to be able to navigate through, as you all both mentioned, is a very difficult um, environment to, in which to navigate through. Uh, we were talking uh, in our pre-call about how we're paid different. Um, we're promoted different. Both of you talked about being the first, um, you know, and, and here we are, uh, this, we're, we're in the 2000s and you all being first to be able to break through in particular areas in your respective fields. Let's have a conversation and Dr. Pittman, I'll start with you about these disparities, about how we're paid different, about even as Black women, we might be paid different. You were sharing a story before about, hey, like we don't need to not have conversations about what we're getting paid. <laughs> that is something we're taught to do because it keeps the oppressive system in place. We need to be talking about what we're getting paid because there may be something that I can help you advocate for that you didn't even know was available to you. So talk about like some of these disparities in pay, some of um, how oftentimes it may take us longer to get promoted uh, or that we are often scrutinized harder when we go up for tenure or when we're looked at for different opportunities opportunities than maybe some of our other colleagues? Again, the short answer is structural racism, um, period, right? Um, we can end that discussion. No, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think when you look at the data, the, the Black-white wealth gap is growing. Um, it, is, it is not shrinking. Um, so that's problematic um, to begin with, right? So, and black women are, are at the bottom of, of the earning scale in terms of, of cents per dollar, particularly in comparison to our, our white counterparts. Um, and then that's compounded by things like student loan debt, right? So, you know, a few years back, you know, there was a report that came out that was sort of lauding that black women are the, the most educated demographic um, and that remains true. Um, black women are earning college degrees at a rate faster than other racial demographics, which is amazing. Um, but we also know that tuition costs continue to outpace students' abilities to pay. So students, all students across the board are leaving college with more debt, um, disproportionately so for black women. Um, and that I think is a function of generational wealth, right? We don't, we don't have 
a whole lot of folks whose parents are paying for them to go to college in the way that we see you know, in, our, in a lot of our, our white counterparts, our white students who are graduating from college with no student loan debt, I'm like, that'd be nice, I have no idea. Um, you know, or whose, whose parents can take out a parent plus loan. I mean, I was a, you know, I grew up in a single parent household. My mom's credit wasn't good enough to get a parent plus loan. So I was taking out all of the available federal loans to me. But when we also sort of look at the trajectory of those loans, 75% of Black borrowers owe more on their student loans than they originally took out. That's a problem. That's a problem. So there, there is no system set up for you to actually pay that back. If you are still making payments on your loans and you owe more on them than you originally borrowed, there, there is no win there, right? And so you get that sort of compounded effect of, of you know, the structural barriers that have, have set black and brown students back in terms of, of access to education and quality education. And then somehow, you know, by all of the resilience poured into us by our ancestors, we figure out how to get into college and how to thrive there and how to pay for it all the while you know, tuitions are skyrocketing. Um, and you leave college saddled with student loans that, you know, at 18, you have no idea the decision you have signed on to and how that decision is going to impact your life 10, 15, 20 years from now, right? And so it essentially translates then to, you know, debt to income ratios that shut Black women primarily out of home ownership. Right, and we know that the way you build wealth in this country is by owning property, right? That doesn't matter how many dollars you have in the bank, those dollars don't have a lot of value. If you don't have assets and assets in terms of like property that you own, that you can hand down, that you can't even begin to close the wealth gap, right? So th there are those kinds of disparities that, that have, I think, trickle down effects for generations. You know, someone like myself who's first generation you know, and, and I make more now, I mean, I made more in my first job out of college than my mother ever made in a salary position. And I, at 20, at 20 years old, I'm like, this is blowing my mind. Uh, you know, so also then having responsibility for family members to make sure they're okay. Um, you know, and so I don't have children. I'm a, I'm a family of two, me and my dog. Um, and so when I, people are asking me to stay late at work, no, I've got to go home. Sorry, I'm a family of two. No, I'm not available for that. Um, but for, for Black women who are moms, they also pay a baby tax, right? That there are, and, and there is research that suggests that women's earnings over their lifetime decreases by at least 10% when they have children. So... You want us to procreate so this thing keeps moving, but then when I do, I either lose my job or because the benefits don't work, the schedule doesn't work, I have to leave that job that I was underpaid and overworked in anyway, or I keep the raggedy job and just don't get promoted. I'm you know, being shut out of opportunities. I'm no longer being asked to serve in capacities I was previously asked to serve in. Um, and, you know, I see this happen to, to Black women that I work with who are moms all the time. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, if, if you want to put me on a committee, if you want me to co-author a paper, please put a Black mom on that committee. Because there is no one better at multitasking than Black mothers, let me tell you. They're going to give you what they said they're going to give you when they said they're going to give it to you. Don't ask them for nothing else because they have no more time to give to it. But you're going to get the thing, right? Whatever it is. So, you know, there, there is this, um, and we've talked about this a, a bit as well, sort of this hyper, this duality of hypervisibility and invisibility to the degree that it serves the interests of, who, of whomever um, is, is telling the story. And, and I think that particularly impacts the ways in which we get policed in our workspaces, um, the ways we move in our community, the levels of safety we feel or don't feel, but it also shows up in the ways in which we are compensated for our work, what is deemed um, worthy of paying for, you know, whether it's a creative contribution or an intellectual contribution, Black women's ideas, um, energy, art gets um, co-opted 
without compensation all the time. Um, and I think that that has, you know, large impacts on our earning potential. Absolutely. 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 I saw Dr. Glass taking notes. So I know that, <laughs> that there are some points that resonated with you that you also want to make, as well as all of us say a collective, yes, ma'am, you are absolutely, you all of that. Uh, all of it. Dr. Glass. Yeah, I, I was just going to circle back to, you know, um, the ways in which we're kind of caught in, in systemic racism, right? We think about kids going to college, now we see more Black kids going into STEM, right? But before it was all the service majors, teaching, nursing, you know, those types of, and we know that they're already underpaid. So, you know, students leaving with, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 worth of school debt. And if you're a teacher, you might be making 29. So you're already upside down. As soon as you, you know, walk into your first, uh, job and so you know thinking about those things and then even just reading the, the one of the more recent reports about how Wells Fargo um, disproportionately was denying black um, home applications. So all your great marketing and your commercials and your splashing your black history, but if we pull the veil back a little bit, you disproportionately were denying home mortgage loans uh, to Black families. So then, you know, that's how folks get stuck in the cycle of having to, you know, rent as opposed to own to build that equity, or they've got to buy in a neighborhood um, that a bank would consider, you know, that redlining ideal or that the neighborhood that they would consider is, is not um, ideal until it gets gentrified. Uh, then it's a whole different story. But, you know, like, so it is this perpetual cycle. And then I wanted to say, you know, in adding on to this, um, to the conversation about uh, mothering and motherhood, we also just didn't name um, Black maternal health, right? So even if, you know, a Black woman wants to start a family, is she going to be able to stay along, alive long enough to birth that child, right? And then make sure that that child is taken care of. And, and if they are pushed out of the workforce, I think another part that we have to add is these crazy childcare prices. I have several friends that say it is cheaper for me to stay home than it is to pay essentially a second mortgage, which is childcare. And then if we're talking about black families, it's even more difficult because it's hard to find childcare that is affirming to black children. So I'm, I'm gonna pay you to mistreat my child? Not gonna do it. I, I would rather just homeschool. I will rather just find a co-op or, you know what I mean? Like it, it I think it is those, those other layers um, that all are still rooted in that, that systemic racism or, or white supremacy, ultimately, the ways in which folks have, you know, have the power to create the hierarchy and deny access and, and, and power to others. But we always figure out a way. We always, we always find a way. You know, it is, you know, we see the uptick and in, in more Black women OBGYNs. We're seeing, you know, just all the different ways that we see the, the, the different issues in the systems or the, where the cogs aren't working and we figure out ways to kind of plug it in or create the solution. Um, but some of the systemic things are just so big that we might be able to fill one little gap, but then, you know, another one, another one pops up. So I just want to add my little two cents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I know we, there are so many different layers to this whole conversation and all of these things and that, and we said before we got on live, we weren't going to get to everything that we wanted to get to. We knew we were going to run out of time. We're trying to be very respectful of my guests and get them out of here in an hour. Um, and you're right. Like we get really creative. We have seen, um, you know, our, our black entrepreneurs pay off the loans of, of, of college graduates. Uh, we have, we have seen, um, our Black entrepreneurs create corporations in which you don't start out in the debt because we're going to fund you through your, so we're, we're figuring out, but it is, it's, it's, you know, it's a bottomless pit and we're throwing stuff in it, trying to fill it up. And it's, it's, you know, it's sinking faster than it's filling, 
but we are strategic and we are creative and we are resilient. And so we're tackling some of these things. And so I want our, our listeners, our viewers to recognize this conversation is not over. I already told uh, Dr. Glass and Dr. Pittman they would be coming back. Uh, so we're going to finish up. There are so many things that we want to get to that we didn't get to today. But I want to thank you all for giving of your time and your talents um, today. Is there any social media you want to share or any other information that you want to share as your, your parting words as we wrap up this, this dialogue for the evening? Dr. Pittman, go ahead. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Pittman Tweets. I am on Instagram at the period district period psychologist. Um, so follow along. Keep the conversation going. Thank you. And I'm at um, Tia Glass, T-E-H-I-A-G-L-A-S-S -S on Instagram. Thank you all very much. You will see them again. You can follow Tea Time with Dr. Tarver on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all your listening platforms, Spotify, Anchor, Apple. This will be posted so you all will be able to come back and go through this, have it so that you'll be able to share it. We want to get this information out. Um, we are so thankful when people come onto the show and they share all of this great wisdom and information with, because this is part of our community building, right? Our intergenerational health, as long as well as our intergenerational wealth. So thank you, ladies, for that. We do have um, a couple of more upcoming events um, that I want to share with you all real quick. Black Women of Faith, Strength and Struggles, we're air live. Wednesday, March 30th on the Tea Time with Dr. Tarver uh, platform with Dr. Lisa Allen McLaurin. And then I also want to highlight an unmasked program Saturday, April 2nd from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, that is going to be facilitated by the Columbus Metropolitan Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. You all are very aware that we had a young person, 12 years old, your little black boy who completed suicide just a few days ago. We have got to help our children. Um, we have got to give them resources. They're struggling. They're hurting. We're struggling. We're hurting. Uh, and, and we need to come together collectively to be able to share resources so that we can make sure that our kids have what we need and make sure that we as adults have what we need. So if you have a kiddo in sixth through 12th grade, uh, you are an adult woman or adult male, please share this. It's virtual so you can be anywhere in the country and log on. And we do thank you for tuning in uh, to Tea Time with Dr. Tarver, and we will see you again next week. Have a great night, ladies, and thank you so much. <laughs>